0: Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show, I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague Paul Ricker, hi Paul.
2: Good afternoon Peter, a week which has been dominated by coronavirus, mm. um, Bad luck like for the beer company <laughs> yeah, I think. A sorry for the beer company. But it does uh, highlight, I think we've got a little more volatility in the stock market yeah. uh, and... Put that to one side, there's still an enormous demand for yield, uh, particularly with term deposit rates so low. Yeah. Reserve Bank meeting next week. There's some sort of suggestion they could still cut rates again next week. I hope they don't. Yep. But, uh, yeah. But, you know, I think it is uh, still opportune for people to think about some alternatives. And uh, we've got an interesting guest
0: in terms of uh, – company involved in some in a mortgage fund. Exactly right. And a lot of people are chasing dividends on the stock market and they're looking at alternatives to term deposits. We know that the, anything as an alternative return deposit is risky. You're mm. going up the risk curve. Yep. But I guess at the end of the day you've got to try and work out the quality of the investment you're getting into and what is the likelihood that something could go wrong. Now, and, f- and there's nothing wrong with taking risk, but you just it's really important you understand that risk yeah. and
2: you're conscious because You know, that's
0: what risk is. Occasionally, you're going to
2: lose money. And uh, and I
0: also say, Paul, and I think you agree, you spread it around. You don't slam, you know, $400,000 out of your $600,000 super fund into one investment. You go in a whole series of them, but still make sure that they're good quality uh, assets that you're investing in. And our first guests uh, are guys by the name of Paul Miliotis and Paul Mirren. And they started a company called M Squared Capital. Guys, thanks for joining us on the program. Uh, thank you. Thank okay, you. Okay, and what's interesting here, we've got three Pauls, like the three tenors, isn't it? Paul <laughs> Rickard, Paul Miliotis, and Paul Miron. I'm going to have to... And I just got the M squared part, <laughs> baby, which I think <laughs> is... Uh... And I'm going to have to actually just call you by your surnames, I think, it's they're yeah, all Pauls. Absolutely. Anyway, let's just kick off and explain what M squared capital is. Paul Miron.
3: Excellent so we're a uh, fixed income mortgage trust so uh, as per our last interview mm. uh, you mentioned the word peer-to-peer mm. is that uh we find opportunities uh where borrowers require funding okay. and we we basically package it up and and give it into an investment grade ability for investors to invest in it uh, um, okay. so essentially uh, our fund is designed as a, what's called a contributory fund as well so every single investor is able to choose a, transaction that we're going to participate in mm. and we're not a pool fund the okay
0: not so point. so
2: you're a provider of you effectively lend money on behalf of investors to developers and others building a property is that sort of
3: it not only to developers right. it would be for any commercial purposes but more importantly is that we are uh, we have to have security so that is very critical to us and the type of security is very important to us so we will lend money for any purpose, any commercial or business purpose, as long as we have a mortgage. And the mortgage would could be poss- possibly a first mortgage or a second mortgage. Mm. It has to be a registral mortgage. Mm.
0: So, um, so Paul Miliotis now, um, is it like a smorgasbord of different investment opportunities? So someone who wanted to uh, give you money to uh, invest on their behalf effectively, and you would pay them an interest for doing it, can they actually select from a a range of possible investment opportunities? Yeah,
4: that's a a very good question. We we differ from a lot of the other mortgage trusts, is that we have full disclosure on the type of deals that you get to choose Mm. from. Um, On Paul Ricard's point about developers, that probably represents about 10% of our actual mortgage business being construction. Mm. Um, Certain people like taking construction debt. Certain people don't. Mm. The way M Squared Capital works is we will provide our investors a range of opportunities that they can choose to invest in. It might be an industrial property in Botany or it might be a residential house in Vaucluse or it might be a block of units in Burwood. Mm. Um, and the, historically we've done majority of first mortgage investments. Mm. So when you look through the type of deals we are doing, their first mortgages, their lower risk being under your 65% loan-to-value ratio, so lending no more than 65% of the value of these assets. Mm. Um, But we have full disclosure on each individual deal that you can choose from.
2: Mm. So just picking up on a couple of terms here, contributing mortgage,
4: Uh and also sounds obvious, but what's the difference between a first mortgage and a second mortgage? Good question, Paul. That's a very... Good question. Um, contributory mortgage can confuse people um, when you think about pooled and contributory. Contributory mortgage simply is that you have to choose the investment that you want to invest in. So, for example, so that's, that's not a pooled fund. It is not yep. a pooled right. fund. So you've got direct um, access to a particular deal,
2: and that means you can see the property or the building yeah. or what it's being used for. So that's, that's exactly the, that's the contributory mortgage part and you join other people that go into... Yeah, another
4: that. word you could use is we syndicate. Right. So we put a, a number of people together to fund a particular transaction. Mm-hmm. So the beauty of a contributory mortgage is that you can actively see what you're investing in. It's not mixed into a pool of construction right. or high-risk assets, you can see exactly what you're going to invest okay, in. Okay, let me, you, So, so just, Before you go, yeah.
2: Peter, maybe now I go back to first and second mortgages yeah. because that was the other yeah, part yeah, of the question. Right.
4: Look, there, there's... What we found is that if you don't understand what you're actually investing in, don't invest in it, mm. okay? People, as you said, the, we like to say that... Investing in term deposits is hard to get a return right now. But when you're lending to people like us, you are going up the the risk curve. Mm -hmm. So I suppose the the better way to put it is first mortgage is your lower risk. You've got first right over that particular property. Mm -hmm. So your your yields are between five and a half and seven and a half, I'd like to say, Mm -hmm. if you for our investors Mm -hmm. percent per annum Mm -hmm. with our mortgage Mm -hmm. fund. When you're going into second mortgage, you've effectively got second right if something goes bad and you have to think about something going bad. Mm. Um, well, you've got second right over that particular so property. So that means there's
2: somebody else before you. So something right. goes wrong, they, they, they foreclose on the mortgage and they take security and you are mm. then sort of got to work with them to potentially get something after that. Is that. Absolutely. Sort
4: of- your, your risk as a second mortgage make no mistake about mm. it is much higher than a first right. mortgage yeah. because the first mortgage has got have got control over that particular. So you would demand so.
0: a higher interest rate if you're taking a higher absolutely
4: risk. and look we have done second mortgages in the mortgage fund and they've been very successful, but we are very, very particular on those type of investments.
0: Yeah, you guys have done some work with BIS Oxford Economics. Why did you do that, and, and what's the, the the result of the, their work? We wanted to
4: stress test our mortgage fund. That basically, historically, um, look, we've we've seen a bit of hard times in the property market. Mm. I mean, it's it's expressed in the media that there's been a significant drop in property prices historically, and we're we're seeing a bit of an up in the recent past. We wanted to stress test our mortgage fund to say if we had to take possession of a property in the unlikely event that One of our mortgages went bad and we had to basically, we we actually lent the money at the best or the worst possible time. Mm. We had to sell it at the worst possible time, sorry. What that meant in terms of risk for our investors. Mm. Mm. And what it meant was in the last, and it was actually around the 2016 mark, the properties, let's take Sydney as an example, dropped about 20% from peak to trough. So if you're lending in that peak to trough market like we did at 65% of the value of the asset, you'd like to say that you would have recovered your money and interest during that time. Mm. So we wanted to stress test our mortgage book mm. and say what was the likelihood of loss if we you know, yeah. took the mortgage at the worst possible time yeah. and it basically reverted to what we thought was that our investors would have got their money back and interest. Mm.
3: And it's an ongoing process as well. So, for example, our chairman of the fund is a gentleman called John Thomas. He ran one of the most successful funds in Australia. Uh, He was a founding member of Howard Mortgages. And in his tenor uh, of running a $4 billion fund, he's never ever lost a dollar of investment money. Um, And it really comes down to what understanding credit. Very, in a very deep mm. sense as well. So as a result of doing that analysis as well, and as a result of his experience and our own personal experience, we are very selective on the securities that we will take. Mm. So the securities that we take is non-specialized. So it means that in an event that a borrower is an, uh, unable to pay, we take what's called asymmetrical risk. So a borrower comes to us and they say, We've, I've got this great idea and I want to borrow a million dollars that's going to be secured against my Vaucluse property. Mm. For example, uh, it doesn't. If he makes a thousand percent return or makes ten percent return, it doesn't affect my investors. Mm. What we're interested in is working out worst case scenario whether I'm going to be investors get the capital and interest in every single time. And, and I
0: guess what you, you're saying to us that if this Vaucluse example you, you're using, uh, and they borrow he, he borrows three million dollars from you, but his Vaucluse places were fifteen million. You're saying, well, worst case scenario, we force him to sell Absolutely. and we get our $3 million and he, he, he loses out, but basically your, your clients are safe.
3: Precisely. However, there's a big mistake made in mortgages as well, is that despite that the fact that there's an LVR of 3 over 15, which is a fantastic mm. low, low value ratio, you still need to ask the critical questions. What is he using the money for? Is he a credible individual? Because there's a really good saying that was told to me when I was a young banker at the bank. Say, we're not in the business of selling people's assets. Mm. We're in the business of lending money and making sure it's gonna be repaid. Mm. So a, a lot of people make the, mis- there's two mistakes that we can see in our industry. Is one, is you just look at the LVR and thinking that's the only thing you have to look at. No, you have to look at a lot of other things. You have to look at the character of the person. What's his track record? Why is he borrowing money? is a commercial. Now, if someone's borrowing money from us hmm. and there's no commercial sense to it, the chance of us having a problem with them is very high. Hmm. So that is one of the first questions we ask.
2: And that goes to your point about mortgages are great, but they are hard to realise. You don't want your borrowers to go <laughs> belly up. What you hmm. want to do is make sure they're paying back on time. That's so right. your depositors can, can effectively get... Hmm. have absolute confidence in their investments, right? H-
0: H- have you yes. ever been in a situation where you've lent to somebody and for some unusual circumstance, like a divorce or something like that, you effectively had to take over the project and complete because the project was actually a good project? We've had to,
4: in the mortgage fund under the first mortgage um, aspects, we've had to work with the development where there was a tax debt involved that ranked pretty highly in the scheme of things Mm. and we had to actually finish the development with the actual developer. So we actually became development partners with that particular gentleman so that we could realise our capital. But in the end, um, no monies were lost, but we just had to work as managers for the best result for our clients, which was doing the hard work for development, which was difficult.
0: And And so does that mean that Going forward, you became quite inquisitive about the tax situation of people you're lending to. Well, look,
4: historically I was an accountant, so we always <laughs> look at tax, but sometimes um, people underestimate what their tax is. Yeah. Um, and in the development space particularly, um, there is risk with GST. Yeah. I mean, that, that hole's been plugged somewhat now. Um, but I think it comes down to when you are lending for a construction purpose, the risk is higher. So while we will, we are very selective in the construction process... Um, You have to be very confident in the developer, the track record, who you're dealing with and those type of things are critical when you're dealing with that type of risk.
2: What markets are you involved in? I mean, you're, you're obviously looking at mm. Sydney and other markets. Tell me about the, prop, the types of property and where they are that you get
4: involved with. Um, historically, we lend only in the eastern seaboard of Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't look at specialised... That's because you don't
2: like the people in Western Australia? Or no, we do. <laughs> we,
4: we, we've got a few employees from yeah. Western Australia, and yeah. we actually think they're the nicest type of people. But mm. in saying that, we do think that the property market is a little bit skew if. So you can make good Very money Very mining there, sensitive. Mining sensitive, and you can lose money Mm -hmm. So it was a business decision that we concentrate in steadier markets. So we look at eastern seaboard properties only. We typically um, don't do specialised or farmland. Mm -hmm. Um, We look at 90% of our business comes from established dwellings. Mm. So blocks of units, industrial, um, commercial properties, those types of assets. Um, We just think it's more easily saleable if we had to take possession Obviously, we don't want to do that, but we don't want to do, as Paul mentioned before, a specialised asset that can actually lose a lot more money if things go bad.
2: And do you compete against the banks in terms of being able to find borrowers or, or do people come to you because they can't go to the bank or you just go through the criteria as to why someone would uh, come to M Square to, to borrow I, their money?
4: I might touch on that, Paul, if I can. sorry, sure. Because okay. the, the reality is the bank's appetite for certain particular assets um, aspects of the market has changed. We are seeing um, bankable clients of the past needing to use our type of services. We are talking um, bigger styled transactions where the banks can't get their head around how they're gonna service the debt. So it's an anomaly to say that a mortgage fund is doing riskier um, people with defaults, specialised assets that are, are risky. Um, I beg to differ with that type of thought. Um, I'm dumbfounded by actually the quality of the clients that we have seen. If you look at our website to see what we've actually financed, I think you would be too. Um, Our core are those particular clients that are just falling out of the banks for whatever reason, whether it's they can't get their head around serviceability
3: um, and those type of aspects. Mm.
0: And and does someone have to be a sophisticated investor to uh, invest with you guys?
3: So, look, uh, essentially, we're a wholesale fund. Mm. Um, So, the word sophisticated um, is is loosely used. Um, A wholesale investor is someone who has at least net assets worth of $2.5 million, Mm. or an income, I think, in the last reported one, was $250,000. So, that's the the criteria. And uh, um, despite being that, we're very hands-on in relation to, and very passionate, mind you, about credit. Mm. So, for example, a lot of the investors who do come invest with us, they they want to have that ability to understand the transaction and the risk associated with that transaction as well. Mm. So for every single deal that we do, uh, we have our own risk risk rating system as well. And so the five elements of credit, five Cs, mm. being the character uh, of the person, the collateral, uh, and other uh, cash flow of the person, we rate each one. Mm. So it makes it easier over time. Like a scorecard a scorecard mm. and we have our own way of actually doing the risk. So, and then over time, the investor actually can choose the risk appetite of where he thinks he best fits mm. as well. So we, we work very closely with our investors, being uh, a mum and dad self-managed super fund uh, to, we've got some very sophisticated individuals who invest 5 or $10 million at a time with us mm. as well.
0: Okay. And, and what interest rate range are we talking
3: about? Well, depending on the risk of the, yeah. we, all of our deals are risk rated. So, for example, the higher risk, the higher return. So they they can start from anything from 6% on a first mortgage to a second mortgage, they could be getting anywhere up to 14%. Hmm.
0: And uh, do you guys have skin in the game?
3: Yes, we do. Hmm. So I haven't done the analysis uh, as yet, but we believe that uh, uh, probably about 80%, 90% of the transaction we funded and now are now a uh, fund so far, hmm. we have our personal money in it, every single deal.
0: All right, guys. Well, if people want to know more, what's the website? It's uh, msqcapital.com.au great thanks for joining us thank Thank you so much so that was paul miliotis and paul mirin from m squared capital now paul the Strategy Days are coming. It's a chance for us to get to know all the people out there listening to
2: look, us. Look, a great opportunity for us to meet listeners, but a great opportunity for you because this is our annual Investor Strategy Days. So we're go around. we going around Australia this year, but uh, the first three are coming up in March. We'll be in, uh, in Sydney on the 17th of March, in Melbourne on the 24th of March, and in Brisbane on the 25th of March. We're going to look at uh, – I think the big question, Peter, out there is uh, – how long can the bull keep stampeding yeah. right yeah. like where 12 March will mark the 12th the 12th year of the bull market yeah. so. How much further can it go? What could bring it undone? Where can you invest? What are the opportunities? And we have some of
0: the best fund managers yeah, in the country with us. how
2: much do have onshore versus offshore? You know, where can you get that higher? If you want to take a bit more risk, where can you go? So, uh, mm. as well as getting security. So, so if
0: people want to be uh, be on board with these uh, strategy days, where do they go, Paul?
2: Well, first thing to do is put it in your calendar. But mm. then you go to switzerevents.com.au dot and you can register for Sydney the twenty fourth, Sydney the seventeenth of March. Melbourne the 24th of March, Brisbane the 25th of March, and we'll be in Adelaide and WA in uh, the back of May. So uh, more on that later.
0: Look forward to seeing you there. My next guest on the program is Rob Kaslik, the founder of Two Good Company. And this is a very interesting story where this is not just a business that's been designed to make money. It's a business designed to help people. Rob, thanks for joining us on the program.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys.
0: So, Rob, tell us about you know what was behind uh, this business, too. And that's TWO Two Good Co.
5: Well, Peter, we started actually as a uh, as a soup kitchen. So, I set up a soup kitchen. I was an engineer in the building services industry. Set up a soup kitchen in Kings Cross. Uh, we served about fifty people every week, and the idea was, how do we actually scale this without asking for money? There was never any I. Eye- Idea of actually uh, turning it into a business per se It was literally: <clears throat> how do we um, raise money to, to give away food without actually having to doing the traditional shaking the candles? <laughs> excuse me, asking for uh, donations. Mm.
0: So, um, so, so initially you were servicing about 50 meals. Did you say a, a week?
5: Yeah, in Sydney, King, 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 King's Cross, about mm. 50 meals each week. Mates know I used to finish work and just go up and cook up a meal. Mm. Uh, we used it all, and it was an organic um, uh, uh, offering, primarily mm. not to be kind of fancy, but primarily just to serve food that's as clean as possible. And then we kind of realized when you serve um, um, a meal that you'd eat yourself, you actually share a meal, not serve a meal. And so that concept of bringing community together around the table mm. was kind of how it all really started.
0: Okay, so that it was obviously a, a something you wanted to do to help people. When did you, the, the penny drop that this could be a business as well?
5: Well, when we when we first started, so I collaborated with uh, I love a good collaboration. We worked with a company called Drogle 5 They come up with a fancy name too good and put out this really great little sixty second clip. Um, and uh, you know, still full time, so they didn't really put a lot of time in it when launched, expecting Tino you know, to sell about three hundred meals, um, and we put all the stock for three hundred meals and. And I only sold six six of these soups in the, the first the first week. So I thought, What the hell am I gonna do with these um these six meals? And so I went to a women's shelter um not too far from the soup kitchen and said, You know, my name's Rob, I'm doing this thing called two but we've sold six soups. Would you like six soups? And the and the manager looked at me a bit funny and kind of yeah, but luckily they took the soups and the rest is history. Really, a few more women's shelters reached out to us to watch some. we want some of those soups. Uh, and then um, it was also the same time as Rosie Batty became Australian of the Year. So there was a really big focus on on domestic violence. And so we had a lot of corporates come to us wanting to be involved in this, um, in, in, in the too-good model. And have so had this opportunity whether to, uh, um, you know, to hand in the engineering certificate and, and follow my heart to this full-time. And I actually went part-time in both. Um, and actually failed at both you know, when I when I first started by are doing part time at both. Um, so I decided to go all in and, and focus one hundred percent on two good and, and I'm gonna kind of have them look back four years later.
2: Now, now Rob, you are um you do have this sort of eat one, treat one model and you are a exactly. business design standard. So just tell me what food yeah. food you sell and who to and then what happens in terms of Yeah. The business model. The, what's the, the model for Yeah, the, exactly. for the people. So we
5: you we sell yeah we sell um, catering so we do all the, all the catering um, And we also sell lunch in jars to, to business, to consumers. So we work with chefs like Kylie Kwong and Neil Perry and Matt Moran. They design the meals for us. And then consumers jump onto a website and order the meals uh, themselves. And if we deliver them to, to CBD Sydney. Um, we deliver them the meals. And then for each meal that we sell, we use the profits of that meal to donate a second meal to a women's shelter.
4: Right. I think so- what
5: we're most proud of is actually the employment pathway is lost. We employ women from the shelters we serve to actually make these meals under our head chef uh, and, and as a pathway out of homelessness.
2: And, and so, look, it's, it's, it's an online sales model to exactly. get people like myself and others who can, who exactly. can, uh, so who can buy that
5: food. Yeah. And, and or the, the, banks, the banks and lawyers and architects and, um, and, and anyone, in the, basically corporate Australia.
2: Right, corporate Australia. And then uh, out of the profit, you're able to provide another meal to a um, women's shorter or other type or, exactly. or homeless... exactly. Uh, Shelter, is, is there any exactly. profit left over for you or is it all, everything you make no, goes there is. No, so
5: there is, so yeah, it, 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 the margins are quite small. Mm-hmm. The margins are quite small, so there, but there, is, there is profit left over um, for us. Uh, with it. It, 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 it is not, not a great profit. Mm-hmm. Where we're finding, um, we've, we've later gone into um, tour trees uh, and, and doing a similar model and using a contract manufacturing model where we're getting them made, getting tall trees made in, in Western Sydney and now we've we're, we're, we're been able to secure quite large contracts with Lend Lease and, and Charter Hall and some of those big property right. companies. when that And the margins there are much greater and helping to really underwrite. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the best business decision to give a meal away with every meal that we sell, but also to employ kind of unskilled people within our kitchen as, an, as a pathway out of homes.
2: And and the corporates when they're buying those toiletries or other things from you, are, are you just competing on normal terms, or are they saying, look, yep. we like the idea of actually some of our investment is going to support, um, you know, someone in need?
5: Yeah, no, it's really important for us that it's actually we're competing with other businesses, um, mainly because you know we like we want people come to us once. Um, you know, if if they know, um, you know, they're having to pay with extra because they're doing a good thing. But we actually want that, that return customer, that year on year. And some of the big property companies are investing more and more with us each year as it goes on because we are actually we like to present ourselves as a business for so it's really important, that you know, it's product, and we're a business, and we don't want to ever have that kind of charity um, perspective. We we want to be business to business.
0: And so, are you? Purely selling soups, or are you diversifying into more mm. catering type um, meals?
5: Yes. Yeah, so most of our um, business uh, last year, towards last year, was more catering. So the you know the breakfast, lunch, and, and afternoon uh, afternoon mm. uh, teas into into corporate Australia. So that was predominantly um, more of a catering business. Um, so we did a of that, and we did the business to consumer was less so. Uh, but that's one we—that's more the marketing side of things, where we work with the Neil Perry's and the colleague wants design the beer.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to ask you. Like, we know Rob—you probably were the greatest engineer in the history of engineers. But <laughs> like, what do you—what do you like in the kitchen,
5: David? Right.
0: <laughs> or do you contract that out to far better chefs? No,
5: they, no, we've got a great head chef and a great team, and, they, and these days they—they don't let me in the kitchen at all. So right back in the day, when I first started, I was out the back there chopping the carrots and then peeling the sweet potatoes. But now when I walk in the kitchen, they kind of get a bit nervous and tell me to of So, yeah, good idea and then come back a bit later. So, yeah, they don't let me in the kitchen at all.
2: And, and, and what are the opportunities, Rob, to grow your business? What are you trying to do over the next couple of years with uh – uh, two good. Companies. Yeah,
5: so, oh, so there's lots of great, many more companies are coming on board to to help us grow really and, and give us their business. So we're we're looking to move out to Parramatta is, is the first next the big move this year as a production kitchen, but also to serve a lot of the corporates out um, in Western Sydney, and also there's greater need for the donated meals in Western Sydney, but also really grow one of the great things about the non-perishables, the toiletries, and the and all the end of the trip facilities. Um, is that can really be a national business? So mm-hmm. looking to grow with some bigger corporates to really underwrite the programs that we have. We have some great programs with the it's called Work Work, and it's that four-month employment pathway program where we're employing someone at risk of homelessness and getting them out of the you know breaking that cycle and getting them into jobs um, post too good. So mm-hmm. that's really expensive. So the idea is to grow the uh, the business on the on the contract manufacturing, the toiletry side to really underwrite that.
0: Mm. The, the work, work program. Well, Rob, um, a couple of years ago, I interviewed um, the founder of Droga5 uh, in oh, in yeah. New York because he's you know he's yeah. taking his business to New York. But the 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 thing about trendy, you know, new age advertising people, it, it puts me under pressure because is it too good co or too good company? I'm guessing here.
5: I say- Oh, I say Two Good Car, actually. I yeah. say Two Good Car. I thought the dragon um, five guys would say
0: that. The, the, yeah, exactly. The kind yeah, yeah, of people yeah, yeah. do that. Yeah, okay. So I got yeah, that yeah, right. Yeah,
5: no, a Good Car. Okay, yeah, right. right.
0: Now, a couple other questions. So how can people get involved and, you know, and and work with you? And also, where can people buy your meals?
5: Yeah, so the easiest way and what we like to support us is, is jumping on to TwoGood.com.au uh, and purchasing our products, whether it's a, a toiletry, a blanket, or or you know, engaging with with us on the food side. Yeah. Um, we often also look for you know, we have um, first of all an amateur and all this. So any kind of advice. So there's often some skilled volunteering that we have. We have a great um, advisory committee um, looking at marketing and PR. So there's there's roles for skilled volunteering, mm. but predominantly, if you want to get involved, it's just sort of jump online and um, and buy some of our things.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, Rob,
5: it's a turn the machine.
0: It's a great. Uh, it's great to see a business with a business model where there is actually a payoff for other people as well. Fantastic. Rob, thanks for joining us on the program.
5: No, thanks very much for having me on the show, guys.
0: Pleasure. So it's Rob Kaslick, the founder of Two Good Co. And it's time for an ad, Paul, and I think it's worthwhile telling people we're doing a microcap conference on the 3rd of March in Sydney, and we tried one in December. And that was a fantastic event. And a lot of the uh, micro caps we looked at, the, the share price actually did very well. Yeah, we had a great list of companies already
2: lined up, Peter. And, of course, uh, February's reporting season, so they've all got to come out with their mm. half-year or annual reports. Uh, this is a great opportunity right at the start of March to actually get to know what the company is doing, put the CEO under the spotlight as to... Uh, yeah, you know, what are they doing, and yeah. where are they spending the cash, and what are the opportunities? And uh, I thought the last one was was it was fantastic. I learned a lot
0: about mm. some of the companies here. And we've got Rudy Philippe Van Dyck coming along from uh, FN Arena, telling us how he actually selects companies.
2: Yeah, and I think that's what one of the things that uh, we forget is that it's it's a bit trickier when you're dealing in in smaller companies because yeah, they are less well known, mm. less mm. well exposed, there's less public information, so. It does require a little more analysis. That's why it's really important to hear from the first hand. Mm. Look the CEO in the eyes and say, mm. do I believe that, that <laughs> guy or Sheila, whatever you call CEO him? CEO would not. And lie. ask the tough question. But yeah. they'll be in uh, our, our small cap conference on uh, Tuesday, the 3rd of March, mm. uh, in Sydney only, but uh, look, we'd love to take that national if we can in due course. So right after the bump end of uh, reporting season. And you can get that, Peter, uh, also at switzevents.com.au.
0: In a recent article for the Switzer Report, Max Williamson, a chartered accountant, looked at the the viability of purchasing an electric vehicle, in particular raised question marks over those who think that the coal industry is on death row. Max Williamson, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So, Max, what made you write this story?
1: Um, Well, I've always been driven through the oil and gas industry and I just got so sick and tired of what we might call creative marketing by people with vested interests, which also includes the Chinese because at the end of the day, the Chinese manufacturers are the ones who are the disruptors. When you analyse what's happening, the major producers like Volvo, Ford, General Motors, etc., they're in the market. They're doing the R&D, whereas the Chinese are not. And here's a new market for them to come in. And so they've got a vested interest, just like a lot of motor vehicle dealers and motor vehicle writers, uh, to actually beef up as much as they can the, the promos on the uh, electric industry, the electric vehicle industry, right, mm. which includes trucks, buses, cars, but principally I was focusing on cars. Mm.
0: So, and your argument is that if the, the procedure of growth of electric cars is a lot smaller than what people are predicting. Therefore, coal's going to be around as a viable industry for quite some time.
1: Oh, well, absolutely, definitely. Regardless of electric vehicles, it will be around for a long time. I think it will diminish as a source of supply of energy mm. over the long period because I think gas will be the major uh, disruptor there. I, I understand gas will eventually come in and it will be the producer of most of the energy in due course. Mm.
2: Yeah, Max, you're not a fossil fuel dinosaur by any means, are you? Of course he is.
0: Of course he is. But go on.
2: But uh, as a lead to a question about, just talk about electric vehicles. Why uh, why can't they, you say it's creative marketing, just put some numbers around as to why we're not going to see electric vehicles take over in the
1: in the near to medium term. We just don't have the infrastructure in the country to enable that to happen. When you analyse it, the the petrol-driven engines in this country have been here what 100 years, mm-hmm. and and so we've had 100 years to build up the infrastructure necessary to drive the motor vehicle industry in this country. And so suddenly you've got to flick your fingers, supply all the infrastructure. It's just not going to happen. So infrastructure mean things like charging stations. It just go yes. to what you mean by infrastructure. Right. Well, it's it's not only the charging stations because to some extent you can have that in your garage. To some extent, I emphasise, uh, but there's other things like the dealers. The dealers have got to have training. Mm. They've got to have staff to be able to work on these things. There's got to be the mechanics. There's got to be the workshops that actually can do the work. You know, they're, they're, not, they're only occurring at the really luxury end of the market at the moment.
0: Mm. So have you looked at examples like Tesla and how they're coping with what they're doing and, and done some extrapolation to actually show that it's just going to be impossible for electric cars to t- take up a significant chunk of the auto industry in, say, 10 or 20 years'
1: time? Mm. Obviously, 20 years is a long time in mm. anybody's language, right? You know, Tesla at the moment are manufacturing something like 3,000 Model 3 uh, Tesla cars in China um, every week, right? But look at the size of the market that they've got. You know, it's just so much more deliverable in a place like that. And so Australia is gonna be a fully imported market. We don't actually produce any cars in this country at all. And so everything is gonna be fully imported. And so Tesla has one product, you know, their their model three is about seventy five thousand Australian dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not too many people who want to race out and spend seventy five thousand dollars on a car, right? So the short answer is that presently coming into this country, somewhere around three to four thousand electric vehicles a year, um, you know, Vehicles being uh, imported, whatever type of vehicle that might be from SUVs, whatever, you know, considerably in excess of that. Consider- we're talking about uh, arguably a million, uh, or it depends, in New South Wales, maybe 400,000. But when you compare that with the you know, three or 4,000 vehicles, it's going to be a long time before they actually make any penetration. And-, and that's because the market is talking. The market is saying, we don't need these vehicles right now. Right? There's going to be so much in the technological advances in battery in different vehicles. They'll so down down The price of the car, the car will become much more uh, cost competitive. Uh, you know, At the moment, the numbers don't work. They really don't work.
2: Now, slightly off, off, off track of electric vehicles, but related industry, of course, is lithium. And a lot of investors have got involved in yes. investing in lithium companies and seen the price collapse almost. Mm. So, again, is that just a case of overhyping? Just explain sort of how lithium and, and what's your view about the the investment in a commodity like that and the whole electric vehicle industry. I mean, right. is it just this sector's
1: way overhyped? I mean, is that your, your take? Well, just like anything, you have uh, booms and busts, but we're not going to go through a bust in the lithium industry. We're going to go through a downward period, right, before demand of electric vehicles actually gets to a point where then you'll have a greater need for lithium. Right, and so there's there's always new mines being created mm-hmm. in Australia. There's a stack of exploration plays which are really really good, you know, based on spongymin and feldspar rather than um, brine out of places like Chile. Right. So the short answer is, lithium will be around, and it will be around for a long time. But it, it all gets down to um, technological advances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lithium at the moment is just the this the one of the major components of the battery, not the only component obviously, right? Uh, And it it has particular features. Um, But there are a lot of other minerals and metals which might have the same features which can be produced a heck of a lot less expensive. So if you look at the price of a a battery in a BMW uh, fully electric vehicle, it's about $15,000, right? So in a Nissan LEAF, it's about 10 to 12 maybe. Yeah, so those prices have got to come down. They will come down, uh, but I don't see that there's anything like the end of the lithium industry. I think it's just going to go through a settling period until demand for electric vehicles around the world takes off.
2: So, so you're a believer in the industry, but like a lot of things where there's hype, they've just get overhyped and change is going to be slower than people expect, take longer, yep. simply because the infrastructure's not there and it's just they're just too expensive. Is that sort of
1: sum yes. up your position? In the short, if you'd like a short summary, yep. there's a lot <laughs> bigger summary than that, but yes. I'm always trying to summarise an argument, always hard. Yeah. But I mean, well, they can always <laughs> read, the,
0: read the story in <laughs> yeah. the Switzer Report.
1: Yeah, that's right, the four pages, but you know, there's a lot more in it. I, I can talk on this subject for an you know, hour All without Max, breathing.
0: Let me cut let me you off in this sense, because a lot of people listening say, right, okay, Let's assume Max is right, he's actually saying that they're, they're bringing
1: forward the future a lot faster than it really should.
0: What coal companies look like good value as a consequence of this?
1: Oh, well, I think coal companies and gas companies, are well and truly, you know, um, I think any of the, the coal companies are worth looking at, mm. right? But you've got to remember that most of the coal in this country is actually exported. There's not massive amounts which are used for coal fired power stations, or, you know, they're, they're slowly being closed. Uh, thanks to governments like the Victorian government. Uh, And so short answer is uh, any of the listed public uh, coal companies. I've always liked Whitehaven. Uh, It's fair to say I did know the the board there for some time as personal friends, but Mm. that's got nothing to do with me saying that Whitehaven was a really interesting company.
0: But you also push gas. So what's the company that you'd be investing in if you believe your gas story?
1: Uh, If you believe my gas story, uh, I've actually got shares in Santos, I've got shares in Origin, I've got shares in Cooper Energy and I'm seriously looking at Empire Energy.
0: Well, Max, as always, thanks for joining us on the program.
1: Pleasure. Look forward to it next time.
0: And that was Max Williamson, who's the director of Will Tax Consulting. Well, before we go, I did actually link Max to, to coal. And I've got a th- I, I, to... I thought you might be smoking something <laughs> there, Peter. No, the, 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 my argument really is, and I didn't push it in, in the interview, but if if electric cars and batteries that drive them aren't going to be the solution in the quickest possible time, then we are going to be stuck with coal-generated Energy, even though solar and other sort of stuff will become more important. So, if coal is still going to be driving energy right around the country, coal mines and coal share prices are still going to probably be okay. Yeah, it's a really good point, Peter. I think there there are two things.
2: I think we just need to take a deep breath about it with coal. First of all, a lot of the coal we actually export is metallurgical coal. Mm. That goes into the production of steel. You've got to have coke, which comes mm. out of coal, to make steel if yeah. you've got to live in, a, live in this modern economy. Yeah. So nothing to do with power generation. Thermal coal is the one that uh, yeah. you know, the people get upset about. But even so, I, I saw the stat the other day, th- global production of thermal coal last year increased on 2018. So we're a long way... Uh, from yeah. really being able to get out there and say, mm. you know, it's time to sort of, despite mm. what a lot of the investment community is doing and a lot of other people are calling for, coal's hit stuck. We're stuck with coal. Yeah. The technology, it will catch up, but yeah. it's going to
0: take a while. Yeah, I think it will too, but it might take ten or fifteen years before it becomes a real alternative. Well, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining Britain us, time. and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>